I adore Sharon Haskell. And by the time you finish listening to this podcast, I'm betting that you will too. Member of Knesset since 2015. Brilliant, beautiful, mom to three very young girls, a relentless voice of clarity and principle who is unintimidated by the old boys club or hearing, as she does so often, that's just the way it is. Well, that's just not good enough, not for Sharon Haskell. We met last week in her Knesset office after a long day, which was far from over, and yet another sleepless night with sick toddlers. But you wouldn't know it. Sharon was focused, fierce, and warm, genuine. She is exactly what we need more of in leadership, not just in Israel, but in all Western democracies. We spoke about very difficult issues, Hamas savagery on October 7th. We had the where were you when conversation. We discussed the abandonment of Israeli women and more by the global community, which actually denies so much of the horror and aligns with Hamas. We get into the legacy of the Holocaust in a personal way and how we integrate that into how we see and think about these issues every day. Sharon is pure fire when talking about the ongoing sexual abuse of Israeli hostages, the corruption of the United Nations and UNRWA. She does not hold back, nor should she. Sharon, or Sharen as it's said in Hebrew, will touch your soul and challenge your mind. She's incredible and she's going far. This powerhouse woman is just getting started. I'm Vivian Berkovich, former Canadian ambassador to Israel, now living in the amazing state of Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Sharon Haskell, member of Knesset for Israeli Parliament. So nice to see you in your busy office today, and thank you for making time to speak with the state of Tel Aviv. It's my pleasure, Vivian. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Sharon was born in Canada, but when you enter the Knesset, you have to renounce any other citizenship, right? Yeah, that's right. She's now 100% Israeli, but a proud former Canadian Yep. with family still in Canada. And I'm proud because when she made it into the Knesset, as for her first time, which was 2015? Yep. Wow, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was actually serving as the Canadian ambassador to Israel, and I never did have the chance to meet with Sharon when I was in office. However, I was really proud of her as a young woman. She did not yet have children, but now you were telling me that you have three toddlers. Yeah, three toddlers. My eldest Unbelievable. is three years old, and I have a year and a half old twins. And she looks great, by the way, everybody. Thank you. I yeah. feel like <laughs> it's just a sleepless night for the last year and a half. We'll get over it. Yeah, <laughs> this is the next decade of your life. So somehow you stumble <laughs> through. And Sharon is a real rising star in Israeli politics. And it's quite a testament to her fortitude because it's been quite a ride since you entered politics in Israel. Yeah, I've entered eight years ago. And we've been through a lot. Some of the most difficult political challenge that Israel had experienced. There were like four elections, one after the other. Five. Five, the last one. But who's it counting? lasted for a year. So it was a bit of a break, but still, we just went straight back into another election. Then one of our worst security 
We'll get to that. War, security, uh, tragedy that Israel had experienced. We're going to, that's going to be most of what we're going to discuss is this October 7th thing, which is our existence at this moment. Yeah. But I just wanted to make sure or make sure our listeners understand when you entered the Knesset, you were with the Likud party. Yeah. And then I don't remember exactly when, but at some point in that series of five elections, you left Likud with Gidon Saar. Yeah, that was two elections ago okay. when we thought that Israel needs a different leadership. And that was the first time we were able to break that cycle of elections and have a different government. It wasn't very successful. Uh, unfortunately, and then we went back into election a year later. I'm still in the party of the New Hope Party with Gidon Saar. Right now, we've joined two parties. So it's New Hope Party and Blue and White Party. We join them together into one list to run together to give Israelis a wider option for voting so that we can appeal to a bigger crowd. Yeah, and that's the political course that we've experienced as parties. Okay, and I won't even ask you what comes with the next election. Do you stay with oh blue and white? God. I know, I won't. But let's get right down to October 7th, because that's that dominates all of our lives every moment. Where were you when it happened? Wow. I was in the north. It was really strange in the night before that. My sister lives in a kibbutz called Kibbutz Chukuk. And my stomach was turning around the night before. I had these crazy dreams, and that's going to sound crazy, but I had these crazy dreams of Iranian agent offloading from cars coming in towards the kibbutz. And I rang my sister, asking her just if she has a key to the little, it's like little cabins of the kibbutz that you can have a little holiday in them. Mm -hmm. And I was there with my girls and I had a really bad feeling. And I, it's never like that. The kibbutz is the most peaceful place. Everybody leave everything open. Every time I'm there, it's very open. But then there was this strong essence and this dream that I had and I couldn't fall asleep. And my sister came with a key to show me where it is. I locked the rooms. And then in the morning, the news started coming. And I was there in the north. I have a gun, but it was actually kept in a safe here in Jerusalem. I was extremely frustrated from that, walking back and forth, understanding the scope of the tragedy. I told my sister around lunchtime, we're going to have thousands of dead. I think we're going to have about 2,000 people dead. Just from the images and everything that had come, it was shocking. And I just drove back into Kfar Saba with my three girls, babies, knowing what had happened to children, women. Videos were starting to come up and everything. And it was terrifying and heartbreaking. And I was on pins and needles. I think if I had my weapon on me, I would have driven to the south. That's how frustrating it was. Yeah, uh, I was home. And I think since October 7th, for months, for a few months, almost every parent had, you know, couldn't couldn't really sleep. Every little noise, I would wake up, go to the window. Look, you always had an escape plan. What's going to happen if someone's going to charge your home like they did? The images of what they did. You ask yourself these questions of what would happen if that would happen to you? How would you react? I want to make clear to our listeners that Sharon lives uh, in a 
town very much in central Israel. But this just goes to, and I think all of us who were not directly there, we weren't in the Otef in the area around Gaza. I think we've all had these kinds of dreams and thoughts, and it shows how deeply the fear, the vulnerability penetrated. There you are sleeping in central Israel and worried. That's the thing. My city is about two, three hundred meters from a Palestinian city called Kalkilia. You hear them, you hear gunfire, you hear everything. And that's for the rest of Israel. Everyone is living either a few minutes maximum, maybe half an hour away from an area where you border. Someone who might be your enemy, yeah. Israel is this tiny little state. Yeah, it it was, I think it took an entire country some time to adjust. And I won't say recover, because I think that would stick with us for a long time. I think the entire country is right now in a post-traumatic stress over what had happened. I would agree with that. It Absolutely, everything is saturated with this very heavy, intense focus, which is October 7th and all that's come from then. And there are two issues, things in particular, that I want to focus on with you today, because there's so much to talk about. Um, But I do want to focus on UNRWA. It's been a very dramatic few days with respect to UNRWA and how they may or may not be viewed by the world. But before we get to UNRWA, I want to talk about this. It just to this day floors me, and I expect always will, this culture, this thing, this denialism that set in almost immediately after October 7th. Immediately. Immediately. We have these incomprehensible attacks, savagery. We have Hamas actually live streaming and filming and recording their savagery and boasting about it and saying, we're going to do it again and again. And at the same time, we have much of the world saying, no, what are you talking about? This can't be happening. The Israelis, you're the savages. You're the genocidal party. Take us through your journey when you first became cognizant of it and how deep it was. And as a legislator in Israel, what were you thinking? What do I do with this? How do I take this and bring the right kind of attention to this? It was extremely difficult. My grandfather survived Auschwitz, okay? And since I was a really young girl, he used to tell us all these stories that we saw as heroic stories. And those stories from the Holocaust, they're tough stories. You don't tell those stories to children. But he had a special way on how to tell us those stories. Uh, matter of fact, my cousin wrote a book with all of these children's stories that he used to tell us from the Holocaust on how he actually survived it. And it resonates because there were two main things that he kept on repeating in regards to the Holocaust. One is that this can never, ever happen again. And that feeling of failure, that the Jewish people were massacred, they were butchered, they were raped, babies were beheaded. They were abused physically, verbally. It was celebrated. Everything. We failed them. We failed that generation. 
I think that pain, bringing it to the other side and things that he repeated about how the Nazis used to tell him constantly that oh, no one would ever believe you. They were there building the ovens, uh, uh, building the roads, seeing all that death and destruction. And the Nazis would constantly laugh at them. No one would ever believe you. And they carried that. And that's why they constantly told their story over and over again. So that people will believe them. If we compare and we understand that the Nazis were trying to cover up for that genocide and the massacre and the death that they brought on the Jewish people, and we compare that to Hamas and the butchery that they created, they didn't try to hide it. They were celebrating it. Exactly. They were publishing it. They were uploading it to social media. They were praising it in the streets. They were parading bodies for the world to see. Their reporters would march with Hamas terrorists into those towns, taking picture of them doing that butcher, the rape and the, and the burning. It was out there for the world. Yet the world still deny that. And that voice on how my grandfather said that we have to remember so that people will believe us and we have to tell that. And the fact that the world is denying those atrocities that had come, that had happened, that Hamas had waged on, the, on, on the, those Jewish peaceful community is devastating. It's really devastating. And so all of these events, they're hard physically, they're hard emotionally, they're hard mentally. And many people in the world had failed us. I mean, it was heartwarming to see many leaders around the world on the first day supporting us. But what we see on media, on channels, in newspapers, they're supposed to tell the world the truth. They're supposed to talk about facts. They're hiding it. They're lying. This is one of the things that I think we all find so difficult that, as you say, that the Hamas terrorists, savages, I call them, who committed these barbaric acts and tortured people so sadistically that they gloated. They were gleeful. They were celebrating. They were exulting. There are so many words we can put to it. And it was out there for the world to see. And then we turn around and within days and weeks, women's organizations not only are silent, but they're saying things like, we don't have any evidence. You don't have evidence. It's my goodness, short of being right there and watching it in real time, you think, what would satisfy you? We don't have as much as we should. We do have forensic evidence. We have eyewitnesses. We have videos. We have some people who have actually come forward and testified. We have reliable third-party testimony, very reliable. This rush to disbelieve these mounds of evidence with respect to these crimes against Jews is arresting. It's, it just yeah. leaves me speechless. And among them were all of the women's organizations. Absolutely. In Canada, in a university, a department that was meant to look after the safety of women, to combat violence against women, and those women were posting in, for Hamas, 
after the atrocities that they committed trying to deny the mass rape and the abuse, sexualizing and weaponizing sexual assault as a weapon of war? A legitimate weapon of resistance. Listen, Canada, I mean, all my Canadians, God, I love Canada, you know that, I'm Canadian, but we're a mess. We're a mess. And just yesterday, the day before, my daughter, who lives in Toronto, let me know that a rape crisis center has publicized online and in their center itself saying no Zionists will be treated here. Wow. Yeah. Forget about Canada because it's a mess. But when I'm talking about the women's movement, women's organizations, I'd like you to address the larger picture, the UN women's directorate, secretary, whatever they call to themselves. To say I'm surprised, I don't think I'm surprised, but it was heartbreaking. We've come such a long way for women as a community the Me Too movement and working together globally to fight for women's freedom, for fight against women's abuse. When Iranian women were fighting the Ayatollah and fighting, demanding their liberties, while the Iranian regime was murdering, raping, imprisoning women just for demanding freedom or just to request to do what they want with their hair, there was a global movement of women cutting their hair in solidarity I'm... with Iranian women. I stood up and cut my hair in solidarity with Iranian women to support them. And that is part of this idea that we thought there's a global women community who would stand together no matter what. But this community has proven that politics is far more important than fighting for women's freedom and violence against women. That's what they did. Their political agenda and their fashionable trends are more important than standing beside women. When we say me too, when we say I believe you, it means globally. What are, are Jewish women a different creature that it is allowed to abuse and rape and torture women? We have women in captivity that are being raped, abused, physically abused, with no water, with no food, with no medication, day in, day night, for more than a hundred days. And they are silent? Where are all the world leaders who were standing up for the violent crimes of Boko Haram? Those are crimes against humanity, for God's sake. And they're putting their politics... Before it, there isn't a women global community. The United Nations doesn't represent that. It's a body of hypocrisy. Their silence is so loud, it's screaming to the sky. They bring politics and their own agenda before they care for women. The silence of women's organizations worldwide is, as Sharon says, incomprehensible. The world knows. There are reams of evidence. And yet, we are told that it was legitimate resistance. Or, it never happened. Hamas would not sanction such sexual violence. It goes against Islam, some say. But Hamas not only sanctioned it, many of its elite Nakba warriors bragged about it. As their right, approved by their religious ideology, leadership, and scholarship. And what was that? That they may take sex slaves as their rightful reward in war. 
and we all assume that they refer only to women. But we know that in the tunnels beneath Gaza, that men too are being raped, sodomized. Where is the outrage? We will return to Sharon in a moment. But first, please consider supporting our work. There is a lot of time and effort that goes into these podcasts and our written pieces. I know that many of you are listening. I can see your financial support is really needed and deeply appreciated. Are you concerned with what is going on in Israel? This is not just another crisis. State of Tel Aviv is committed to delivering superb and candid analysis, and we're offering a limited-time subscription special, a 33% discount from the regular fee of $90 annually, one year for only $60. Stay informed and stay connected with State of Tel Aviv. We are a reader-supported enterprise. If you value our work, please subscribe. It makes a huge difference. Stateoftelaviv.com all one word. Now, back to Sharon and our really raw discussion in her Knesset office. When you were telling the story of your grandfather who had survived Auschwitz, my father was a survivor. Um, he was never in the camps. He was in forced labor in Romania. And your grandfather, you said, told you how the Germans mocked them and no one will believe you. And they did do those things. And your grandfather came out saying, we have to remember. We have to keep it alive. We can never let these memories slide. We can never forget. My father came out with a slightly different message. And he used to say to me, don't tell me it can't happen again, because it did. They were coming from a, obviously a similar place. But my dad's message was, never let your guard down. Never think it can't happen to you. Now, I'm grateful that he's not with us today, because I think he would have been absolutely devastated by this. Yeah. But I don't think he would have been surprised. The only thing that would have surprised him was that it was in Israel. That this most egregious... Because when we said never again, it means that we will always have the independency to guard ourselves, to not be at the mercy of any kind of other ruler or government. That we can govern ourselves and protect ourselves by ourselves. That we can stand on our own two feet and protect our children. And that is exactly what the state exists to do. Yeah. And that is all. And that's why for me and many others, I know we're stuck on October 7th because if our state cannot do that, then what yeah. does it exist to do? And we have all of these people who, not just you in your town in central Israel, but people who want to return to their homes. I don't know that they ever will feel safe to return to their homes. There's going to be a long process, I think, to build back the trust, obviously. But I think the whole Israeli society coming together in defense and social workers and different organizations who had volunteered is absolutely incredible. And I think that starts to build the trust back. And yes, it, it's going to take time. Let me ask you this, because you are sitting, of course, in opposition in this government with your uh, New Hope Party, but part under the kind of blue and white banner led by Benny Gantz. And from the very beginning, the message from the government, and I'm using government holistically now, not in terms of op, the message from the government is, has been, correct me if you disagree, we have to be united 
we have to be united on fighting Hamas, on winning, and on bringing the hostages home. Now, I think the messaging's gotten a little kind of imbalanced from time to time, but we don't need to get into that today. Another part of that for months, until really the last two weeks or so, was the government saying, don't talk about what's going on with the hostages, don't publicize, saying to people who were coming out, be careful, because there was a view that, that if we allow people to speak freely about what's going on there, that's somehow going to harm the hostages who are still there. You were speaking very freely. Everyone's speaking very freely. The abuse is horrific. It's ongoing, and we all know about it. Why was there this thought that keeping it quiet will somehow help? I think that many times Israel is trying to keep it on the low, and I think a lot of the times it's a mistake that we don't put it on the front. There was a thought of protecting and defending the families of the hostages so that they don't really, to protect them from understanding what is happening there because it's heartbreaking. Try and imagine your daughter being held captive there. These parents don't sleep at night. They don't sleep during the day. They are constantly in their thoughts and their heart. It's shattered. And so this idea of a community and how to defend it a lot of the times works against us. But I think the world has to know. We cannot be silent anymore. They have to know. The Red Cross has been proven as a completely useless organization. The United Nations is a completely joke. This week, they voted Iran to be the chair of the committee for disarmament. Yeah. Okay, um, come on. Can there be a bigger joke than that? There can, actually. <laughs> and we're going to talk about it in just a second. Now that you've raised the UN, and I'm glad you have, because, of course, I wanted to talk to you today, as I mentioned at the outset, about UNRWA. And this has been a big week for UNRWA and for Israel. And UNRWA has been exposed to have many Hamas fighters employed as teachers, as social workers, in all kinds of positions in the Gaza Strip. Uh, I don't think that Fact and reality is a surprise to anyone in Israel or anyone in the world who has followed the reality of what UNRWA is and what it does mm -hmm. for many decades. Yeah. But for some reason, the disclosure in two separate cases of significant information incriminating UNRWA, one was by Hillel Neuer, who runs UN Watch, mm -hmm. and he exposed a telegram group of over 3,000 UNRWA employees, teachers who in the past had talked a lot about their salaries and working conditions, um, but since October 7th spoke of nothing else but how thrilled and delighted they were with yeah. the massacres. And we also have the IDF, which has produced evidence to the UN, which I think yesterday it was 12, today it's many more, has very detailed dossiers on UNRWA employees who took part in the savagery actively of October 7th yeah. and possibly since. And one more thing is that we also know from the testimony of several hostages who were released that some were held captive, one in particular in the home of an UNRWA teacher who had 10 children and was a young boy and he was kept locked in a room and not fed. And there was also, I believe, a physician yeah. who kept um, a hostage in his home. So I'd love to hear your thoughts 
on this kind of are big you reveal from it. No, no, none of us are. I mean, but it's, it's in two thousand and five, Israel alerted the United Nations, for example, that uh, one of the principles of UNRWA's school is in the head of a teachers' union is in fact a Hamas activist, but not just an activist, but the Hamas spokesperson. Right. Okay. It took them more than 10 years until they actually fired them. And there was all this mounting evidence that he's actually taking full part in the Hamas terrorist organization. There are many cases like that. Okay, so let me Uh, rephrase uh, it. Let me make it easier for you. We had on Friday the International Court of Justice, right? mm -hmm. I've done lots of work, so my listeners are very familiar with that. We have the International Court of Justice come out and say on the one hand, on the other hand, but no clear decision. But, of course, hearing Israel even being Israel and genocide being uttered in the same sentence with Israel being, of course, accused of committing genocide is hard to listen to, no matter what the court has to say. And then we have this big UNRWA disclosure epiphany where all of a sudden there's this evidence disclosed by the IDF and the U.S. says we're suspending our funding. And they've started to fall like dominoes. The U.S. said we're suspending Australia, Canada, Germany, the U.K., Italy, Finland. There are more. Why? All of a sudden, are they choosing to see what we've known and they've all known, all of these countries, for decades? That UNRWA is controlled by Hamas and does Hamas's bidding. Why do you think they chose this moment to do their big aha? So I think it's just a matter of fact that we are aware more and more of what Iran is doing in the Middle East, and they started targeting the international community as well, to be honest. There were more than 80 attacks on American bases in Syria and in Iraq on American troops. Okay, just yesterday, uh, there was an attack where I think Uh two soldiers actually died and many were injured from an attack by Iran. Iran is using their military forces all around the world. Hezbollah is a brigade of army of Iran. The Houthis are a brigade of army of Iran. Same in Syria and Iraq, and same with Hamas. They're targeting international commercial ships, okay, costing a lot of money. So Iran is starting to raise its head up after the 7th of October, trying to show that it's got a little bit of power. Now, when you understand that instead of Hamas looking after their civilians, they're actually investing in terror and war and hatred. And when one of their leaders is saying in an answer to a question, oh, you know, you invested so much money in tunnels and weapons. Why didn't you look after the Palestinians for them to have a refuge or shelters from the bombing? And he said, quite simply, it's the international community's job. And he's true. The United Nations has built a parallel government to Hamas to give them a civilian branch. That's what they're doing. They've got schools and a medical system and housing, not just tents. Yet these are full-on villas and full-on neighborhoods. They're collecting their garbage. The United Nation, okay? So UNRWA is just another arm of Hamas. They have taken over the human uh, resources. They put Hamas activists and Hamas family members as in these positions. There are more than 10,000 workers of the United Nations. And those employees are, in fact, Hamas. If you're an 
average Palestinian Gazan citizens that don't want to be affiliated with Hamas, you'll never get those lucrative positions and those uh, high salaries. This is regarded for their activists. And that's why you see that. That's why a week before the 7th of October, they actually sent a letter to UNRWA workers to take a leave so that they can prepare for the 7th of October massacre, okay? They were paid for that leave so that they can go and train and prepare and bring weapons. That's why every UNRWA school, it means every United Nation facility in Gaza, has bunkers and ammunition and terror tunnels that they go in. They use it as military bases when it is straight on your face and all these evidence are coming out. And I have to say, and I'm criticizing my government who didn't even brought out half of the evidence that have mounted there on how Hamas is using UNRWA as its long arm. Right. Okay, there's still a lot of information they're not revealing. And I, my fight is for them to reveal that. They can't ignore it. Most of them declared Hamas as a terrorist organization. Now they knowingly are sending money to a terrorist organization. When you see the humanitarian trucks of aid, that doesn't go to the Palestinians. That goes to the hands of Hamas. Many world leaders and, of course, the Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, who self-styles as a big champion of human rights and humanitarianism, constantly making statements in the UN and elsewhere that we have to get more aid into Gaza. And I'm constantly reminding him on Twitter, no, Ambassador Ray, the problem isn't getting it in. The problem is taking away from Hamas. Yeah, preventing as soon as it crosses into Gaza, getting the Hamasniks. Absolutely. That, hijack it. With if you go there, Hamas is selling all of this foreign aid. Qatar and the Emirates has sent tents so that they have like a cover from the rain. They're selling it. It costs 2,000 shekels for an Emirates yeah. tent, and it costs 3,000 shekels for a Qatari tent. The bags of flour, that cost 200 shekels. Who can afford that in that situation? Okay, who's pocketing all this money? It's Hamas. So it's not really being distributed. You want humanitarian aid to be distributed? Bring the Canadian humanitarian organization into Gaza and distribute it to Palestinians who are literally starving because Hamas is starving them. Why is the Israeli government resisting disclosing more of the implicating information, do you think? This is my fight. I, and then we're going to have to wrap up. So I formed the lobby to reform UNRWA in 2015 when I knew it was a problem. Mm -hmm. When I went to the foreign ministry and to the defense ministry they and discussed with them on trying to reform UNRWA, they said, we can't, this is what we got, and this is how we're dealing with it. There is not an alternative to that. And from there, I started going to the international community to try and get them to take responsibility for the funds that they're sending to Hamas. That idea that this is what there is and there isn't anything to do with it, we cannot tolerate that anymore. Too many people paid in their lives for putting a blindfold on our eyes. And we cannot repeat that. Otherwise, the 7th of October, it's not just a matter of time when it's going to happen. And so the Israeli government, and, and not, not the government, but the ministries, are still set on this idea that no one else can replace UNRWA. No. The Palestinians wanted independency. They were given Gaza, free of charge. No, nothing to give back. The whole land. 
They need to know how to govern themselves. They cannot rely time after time for the education, for the infrastructure, for cleaning their streets on the United Nation. If they want to be independent, prove that you can. Prove that you can look after your own people and not just use and abuse them for your own goals. So there are solutions on how to give out humanitarian aid. There are more than 17,000 humanitarian aid agencies worldwide, okay? USA, Doctors Without Borders, so many. Get them in. Get those workers to come in and distribute that and make sure that a terrorist organization is not abusing that population. Sharon Haskell, thank you so much. I love your fire and your passion. I hope to speak to you again soon, maybe in a few months when we're further down this road and we start to see some form of solution or way through what at the moment looks like a kind of big mess. Yeah. But keep doing your brilliant work. Thank you very much. Thank Vivian. you so much. It was a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> it was dark when I left Sharon's office at the Knesset, giving her just enough time to dash down to the Knesset TV studio and do another interview. When her assistant tried to move her along 10 minutes before we wrapped up, she asked, why? For makeup, her assistant said. I'm fine as I am, said Sharon. I have makeup. Whether she did or did not is really beside the point. What she was doing in the moment was so much more important than her makeup, and she was not going to stop. And she looks great, made up or not, so there is that advantage. It was inspiring to sit with this young mother, politician, fighter. You'll be hearing more about her in the months and years to come. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the State of Tel Aviv and Beyond podcast. We'll keep the dispatches coming as frequently as we can. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment, rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can check out our full library of articles and podcasts at our website, stateoftelaviv.com. State of Tel Aviv is an independent media venture, and we rely on subscribers to support our work. If you are not yet a paying subscriber, please consider taking the plunge today. Each person really does make a huge difference, especially in these very challenging times in Israel. It is important that you stay informed and current and seek out a range of perspectives. This is a pivotal moment in Israeli history. It is not a time to be passive and disengaged. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. I'm Vivian Berkovich, signing off from deep inside the state of Tel Aviv.